Thanks, Eric. <clears throat> well, my name is Andrew, one of the pastors here. Looking forward to getting to meet you at some point if I haven't met you before. If I have met you before, it's great to gather and worship with you. As we look at this text this morning, I want to start by asking you a question. How do you respond when your perfectly normal plans clash with God's seemingly ridiculous will? Ever been there? You have perfectly normal plans, and maybe you plan to take a little vacation and a snowstorm hit. Normal plan clashes with God. Well, that's something small, but it's affected us, right? Or maybe it's something large, like, like you plan to have children, but God hasn't allowed that to happen. It hasn't been God's will for your life. Or maybe you plan to retire with your spouse and enjoy retirement, and God's will was to take your spouse home early. Maybe you had a plan to get this job and to pursue this career and to build this certain life, but that never happened. Was that just random chance? No, we don't believe that was random chance. We believe that that is God's will. And so all of us interact with this in different ways. We have small things, small, seemingly inconsequential things that happened. We were making a plan over here and God redirected us or, or God had a different plan for our lives. Or, or maybe it's a big thing. We had this deep desire, this deep plan. We had built our life off of this thing, but that wasn't God's will for us. And at the time, it sure does seem ridiculous, does it not? I mean, I remember one of these in my own life. I was, my wife and I had just had our first daughter, Avery. She was newly born, and our plan was to build this little life and to provide for her, and God's will was for us to leave the church that I was a youth pastor at and plant a church. That meant raising this daughter without an income for me as a man. My plan was to provide for my wife and my daughter. We had a home, and God's will was for us to leave that home, to step out in faith and follow him. At the time, it seemed ridiculous. It wasn't my plan, but it was God's seemingly ridiculous will. And I say seemingly because God's will is never ridiculous. It's always good. It's always right. It's always true in what we ought to step into. But it, certainly in moments of challenge, when our plans aren't working out, when things don't go according to our plan, and we begin to understand that maybe this isn't God's will for me, maybe God's will for me isn't isn't for me to be over here, it's for, to redirect me over here. It certainly seems ridiculous to us in the moment, doesn't it? So only with hindsight and looking back and considering the character, the nature of God and how he leads us through these seasons do we begin to understand that his will isn't ridiculous, but it's good and it's right. And in fact, that's where we find Joseph here in this text, don't we? The text that Eric just read for us, we find Joseph with a perfectly normal plan. This morning, we're going to look a little bit at the life of Joseph, as we do in this text. Consider Joseph's plan A. It was to marry Mary and have a normal life. Perfectly normal plan, right? And this is what most of us do. We marry somebody and we want to live a perfectly normal life. This was Joseph's plan. Look at verse 18. Now, the birth of Christ took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Betrothal. This is like the engagement period in the Old Testament. It was, it was more intense than our engagement. They were actually considered married at this point, but they hadn't consummated the marriage. So there was some legally binding commitment to one another at this point. Joseph is betrothed to Mary, and likely they were set up by their parents. In this culture, it's different than our culture. Oftentimes there were arranged marriages. So this marriage has either been set up by their parents or Joseph has just decided he wanted to marry Mary and Mary said yes, right? Somehow they're in this agreement. They are betrothed to one another. Joseph's perfectly good plan is to marry Mary, 
to have a normal life. Joseph and Mary are these, these two young kids. I say kids because they typically got married younger and earlier in this age. Mary was likely between the age of 12 and 14, maybe up to 16. Joseph may have been a few years older than that. They're from the city of Nazareth. Actually, when I say city, I shouldn't say city. It's a town. It's a small little podunk town. It's a backwoods town. In fact, later in the Gospels, when somebody says that Jesus is from Nazareth, they say, can anything good come from that city? It's a backwoods, low-educated, throwaway town. It's believed that there's probably, the population was probably between two to 400 people in this town. Small little town. The, the reputation of this town was, could anything good come from there? And Joseph is a guy who's grown up in this town. He's a carpenter. His father was likely a carpenter, and he became a carpenter. And as most of us know, he trained Jesus, his son, to become a carpenter. But this is who Joseph is. This is his life. Perfectly normal life. He lives in this small little town. He has a trade. He's grown up. He's learned a trade. He's working that trade. He's living his life. He has a plan. He's betrothed to marry Mary. He's, he's ready to seal the deal, to consummate this marriage, to, to take her as his wife forever, to join together with her. And he has a plan of how to provide for her. He can do his carpentry work. He can build this family, build this life. They can have some kids. They can have a happy, little, normal life in Nazareth. Right? That's his plan. He's walking towards that day when they will consummate the marriage. And Mary comes to him with this news. Joseph, I'm pregnant. Now, Joseph and Mary had not slept together before marriage. This text tells us that Joseph was an upright man. He was a just man. He was a good Jew. He was applying the good law of God, waiting for the time of this consummation with his wife, Mary. And so Mary comes to him. Joseph has this perfectly good plan to live this perfectly normal life. Mary comes to him and discloses Joseph. I'm pregnant. Men, put yourself in his shoes. You have a plan. You have a fiancé. You're going to be married. You are trying to honor God's word, and you've kept yourself from her sexually for the wedding night, and she comes to you and says, I'm pregnant. You know that child's not yours. I haven't slept with her. Just Can you, can you imagine the emotions going on here in Joseph's heart? I mean, the, the first thing that he assumes is that Mary has committed adultery. She's promised to marry me. This is going to be my wife. I, like a good Jew, have been saving myself for that night. And here, Mary, my fiancé, has slept with another man and got pregnant. Joseph's perfectly normal plan was not going according to his plan, right? And so we, I mean, we know, kind of zooming out, we know in this story that Mary is pregnant from the Holy Spirit, not from another man, but but Joseph gets this news and he's wrestling through, what does this mean? What does this look like? Look at verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. We'll dig into that in a minute, but let's stick with looking at Joseph here. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now, the Jewish law said that a man could leave or divorce his wife even if they hadn't consummated the marriage yet. In this betrothal period, he could leave or, or divorce her. In fact, adultery was 
punishment by the law, by stoning. You could be killed for committing adultery. So Mary could actually be, if, if this pregnancy had happened by normal human means, Mary could have been killed for this act of unfaithfulness. But Joseph is a just man. He's, he's a good man. He's a good Jew. He knows, I have the grounds to divorce Mary. I don't want to do that publicly. Remember, they're in this small little town. Everybody knows Joseph. Everybody knows Mary. Can you imagine the thoughts that are going through Joseph's head? Well, she's going to show. They call it popping, right? When did you pop? Like all of a sudden you can notice that a lady is pregnant. And men never assume that a woman is pregnant. Just always, just never ask if they're pregnant. I learned that once at Caribou Coffee Shop. Never ask if somebody's pregnant. I mean, nine months in, just assume they're not pregnant. But Joseph knows, like, she's going to show. People in our small town are, are going to know that Mary's pregnant. They know that, that we're betrothed, but, but they know that we haven't sealed the deal yet. And so Joseph's wrestling with the feelings of shame, with the feelings of what are people going to think about me? How is this going to impact my reputation? And so he resolved to do the upright thing, not to shame her, not to, I mean, what, what, a, what a man of faith, a man of character. He could save face here by, by telling the city that she's pregnant, it's not mine, let's, let's make this thing public so that my name is cleared. But Joseph decided to do the honorable thing and to divorce her quietly. This is what's going through his mind. We have to, we have to assume that either Mary had told Joseph this, this story, she had come to him and she had told him, hey, I'm pregnant by the Holy Spirit, and Joseph is trying to figure out if he should believe her or not, Right? So he's thinking through, I'm, he's made up his mind, he is resolved to divorce her. She came to me, told me that she's pregnant, not with another man, but with the Holy Spirit. That's a pretty crafty lie. Wow, Mary, that's amazing that you would go to the lengths of not thinking that you cheated on me by telling me that God, the Holy Spirit, impregnated you. And so he's resolved, He has decided in his mind to divorce her quietly. Verse 20. But as he considered these things, okay, so that, that's plan B. Before we get into verse 20, that's plan B, is to divorce her quietly and make the most of a seemingly bad situation. How often do we operate in this way? When, our, when things aren't going according to our plan and God's will somehow seems to be intersecting with and, and interacting with and wrecking our plans, we come up with alternative plans, do we not? Okay, this isn't working. I wanted to do this. This is the plan that I had set. That's not working out. Plan B. What's Joseph's plan B? To quietly divorce Mary. He's, he's an upright guy. I think this is an honorable decision of his, but it's his plan. It's not God's plan. His plan is to divorce Mary and to make the most of a seemingly bad situation. Think about different points in your life where things weren't going according to plan and you continued to come up with alternative plans and try them and they failed and, and tried this out and it didn't work. This is what Joseph is doing. I had my plan, it's not working, and so I'm going to try and work around this. I'm going to make some course corrections and try and figure this thing out as I go. Plan B, divorce Mary. And that leads us into plan C, which we see here is that he is to surrender to God's will. Verse 20. But as he considered these things, as he thought about his options, as he tried to figure out a new plan, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. 
All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord had commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So Joseph, in going through these plans, he I mean, he had the luxury of God appearing to him, an angel of the Lord appearing to him and just telling him verbally, audibly, in a dream what to do, right? How many times do we want that? We're like, okay, things aren't going according to my plan and it seems like God, it it seemingly, it, it appears as though God's will is bad for me or misdirecting me. If only God would just speak verbally to me and make it clear to me because I'm a simple person and I need to hit him to spell it out. And Joseph got that. Joseph got that. Well, guess what, church? We have that as well. We have a book full of it. We actually have more of God's revealed and spoken word to us than Joseph did. We just have to open it and dig through it and read it. And God's spirit is living within his people. You are surrounded by the wisdom and direction of God right now. Do you tap into it? We, we have available to us the same type of direction and voice that Joseph did. As we go through our lives and as our plans aren't working out, as things aren't going according to plan, we have available to us the Spirit of God and the Word of God to help redirect us so that we would surrender to God's will in the same way that we see Joseph do this. The angel comes to him and tells him, do not be afraid to take Mary. Yes, it's going to be dangerous for you. It's going to be questionable for you. People are going to question. I mean, can you imagine Joseph just thinking this through? So you want me to marry her and to tell our family, our friends, our small town that I didn't sleep with her. This is the Holy Spirit's baby. This baby's name is going to be Jesus because he's going to save you from your sins. He's going to be the promised Messiah. Joseph is put in an incredibly vulnerable, precarious situation. And he chooses to submit himself, surrender himself to God's will. Look at verse 24. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. That's that's an incredible, I mean, look at what the Holy Spirit in surrendering ourselves to God can do. Joseph took Mary as his wife. He followed through with this plan because the Lord told him to, and then he still continued to abstain from sleeping with her. Great job, Joseph. How many guys could do that? Especially young men who have saved themselves for marriage. It's like, I'm getting married, and that night we're going to consummate this thing. That's what you're excited for, right? This is a safe place. We can talk about that. I mean, that's what must be going through Joseph's head. And he's saying, okay, I'm going to surrender my will, my desire, my wants to the Lord. I'm going to trust him. I'm going to trust him. In this text, we see that Joseph is an example for us to imitate. He's an incredible example for us to imitate. I want you guys to understand Joseph and what he was going through. His willingness to obey surpassed his need to understand. How about you? Do you you justify your actions? Do you justify your thoughts? Do you justify certain things that you do or don't do because you don't understand God or what he's doing? I think we often do this, don't we? I mean, as I interact with people and as I think about my own heart, my own thought process, 
I'm, a, I'm much more likely to submit to and surrender to God's will if I understand what he's doing. And, and Joseph got some indication here of what God was doing. I mean, the angel of the Lord came to him and said, this is what's going on. Here's, here's the, the celestial view of what's going on. I mean, Joseph has the privilege of interacting with the unseen world. An angel speaks to him and an angel gives him God's perspective, God's purpose in this situation. And so Joseph had that luxury. He, he had some understanding, but surely he didn't have all of the understanding, did he? He had the spiritual perspective and understanding. I want you to know, church, we have a spiritual perspective and understanding in the word and in the spirit. What Joseph didn't have was the day-to-day understanding of how God's will was going to be worked out in his life. That's the same for you and I. We have the spiritual perspective and understanding. God has given us prophecy and promises and his spirit to help us understand the cosmic scale, the unseen realm of what God is doing. God has given us that ability, just like he gave to Joseph. And yet, mostly, we wrestle on the, the seen realm. We, we, we don't, well, how is this going to work out? Okay, God, you're asking me to do this. Well, how, what's that going to look like tomorrow? How am I going to make my paycheck? How am I going to interact with this person? How am I going to practically, on the day-to-day, do what you are asking me to do? That's where Joseph must have been at. He's he's got this cosmic view. But verse 24 tells us that he awoke from sleep, he did as the angel commanded him, he took Mary as his wife, knew her not, named him Jesus. He didn't understand what the day-to-day was going to be like. I mean, he didn't understand what his friends and family and small town, what they were going to say about him, what this was going to do to his reputation, how this was going to affect the rest of his life. And yet he obeyed God. Church, does your willingness to obey God surpass your need to understand him? God hasn't promised to reveal all of the details to us. He's promised to give us himself. He's promised to to guide us. He's promised to take care of us day by day. Another Phrase. I, I love this phrase. I stole it from the Jesus Storybook Bible. Actually, it, talks, it says this about Mary, but I want to apply it to Joseph and to us. It says, Joseph, Mary, you and I, could this be true of us, that we've trusted God for more than what our eyes could see? Joseph couldn't see tomorrow. He didn't know how submitting himself to God's seemingly ridiculous will was going to affect his life in the day today, and yet he did it. He did it because he trusted God for more than what his eyes could see. He did it because he, he, his obedience to God surpassed his need and his desire to understand God. Church, I fear that far too often we put off submitting to God. We, we put off trusting God. We put off following God because we sit over here saying, well, God, you gotta tell me how. You gotta tell me why. You gotta tell me when. You gotta, you gotta give me the details. God's saying, you I'm not, I'm not concerning you with the details at this moment. Will you trust me? Will you step out? Will you, in faith, follow me? And this passage gives us an incredible picture of faith. Joseph is an example for us to follow. But Joseph isn't the main point of this text, is he, church? You know we can't get through a text just looking at Joseph. 
Jesus is the hero of this text whom we ought to celebrate. So there are two figures in this text that I want to look at. The first one was Joseph. I think there's some good lessons for us to learn by looking at Joseph's life. But ultimately, this text is all about Jesus, is it not? Starts here with verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. So this passage, the author Matthew here, he's wanting to clue us into who Jesus is. It's a great lesson for us to learn by looking at the life of Joseph and how God interacts with his people. But the purpose of this text, the point of the author Matthew, is to help us to understand who Jesus is. To help you and I to understand that Jesus is a hero whom we ought to celebrate. That's what, when we, that's what we do when we gather together, church. We celebrate Jesus. We look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We don't just come in looking for a few good life principles that we can apply to tomorrow. Joseph gave us some good life principles to apply for today and tomorrow, but ultimately we gather to look at Jesus, to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. He's rooted in this text as the point, as the purpose, as the giver of life, as the one who redeems life. Let's look at him. We're told that he's conceived by the Holy Spirit. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, so the text is telling us, Matthew's telling us, this isn't the product of Joseph and Mary coming together. This is before they came together. Mary is a virgin, as verse 23 tells us, this prophecy from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Mary's a virgin. She's never slept with a man, and yet somehow she's pregnant. She's found to be with child from the Holy Spirit, Look again at the second half of verse 20. Joseph, the son of David, do not fear, this is what the angel tells Joseph, to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Verse 23, behold, the virgin shall conceive. How does that work? How does that happen? How does a virgin conceive? We, we can't fully understand that, church. This is, a, this is a mystery for us that we can't, Wrap our minds around. This is a mysterious conception. Not the immaculate conception as the Catholic Church will teach where Mary never sinned. And, and uh, No, we believe here at this church that Mary was just like you and I. She was a sinner by nature and choice. But God miraculously interacted with her and caused her to get pregnant. The Holy Spirit mysteriously, miraculously bringing about new birth and new life. What we need to see as we look at Jesus as the hero here as the Holy Spirit is conceiving Jesus in the womb. Verse 18, now the birth, that Greek word is Genesis, the beginning. Remember, that was also the Greek word in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, which we looked at last week, the book of the genealogy or the Genesis. Matthew seems intent, the author of this letter, the disciple of Jesus, seems intent to help us understand that in Jesus there's this new beginning. In Jesus there's this new life being created and being offered. And so where Adam, the first man, was created by the breath, the spirit of God, Jesus, the second man, the second Adam, is being created by the breath of God. God is breathing his life into Mary, a new life, a redemptive life. If you remember back to Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 1 verse 1 and 2, the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Here, the spirit of God is active in creation. 
The Spirit of God is God's creative agent, bringing life, bringing substance, bringing all that we see and we know. And the Spirit of God is the one who breathed the life of Jesus Christ into the womb of Mary. The only way that that happens is through a miracle. All other human life, other than Adam, when Adam, the first Adam, the first man was created, that was miraculous, right? The breath of God being breathed into, into this man formed from the dust of the ground. And now the breath of God being breathed into the womb of Mary forming this new man. All other human birth is not miraculous. It's natural. A man and a woman come together and you know how that happens. It's natural. This is how God set up life to be. He, God established us to be people who procreate through natural means. Jesus is a supernatural being. Fully God, fully man, this, this mystery that we talked about last week. But in this story, we see that Jesus is a new humanity. He, he's the breath of God being breathed into the womb of Mary. He's the divine meeting humanity. He's coming to redeem mankind. We also see in this text that he's given the name Jesus and the title Christ. We dug into that last week, so I don't want to spend a ton of time here, but we need to pause and look at it again because this is what the text is all about. Verse 21. She will bear son, and you shall call his name Jesus. In the Old Testament, Joshua, Yeshua, God saves. You will name him Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. And then he has the title, Christ, which means the anointed one of God. It's not his last name, it's his title. It's his role. He's the anointed Savior, the Messiah. Jesus saves his people from their sins. Christ is the anointed one. Church, Jesus is the one who saves. He has come to save his people. He has come to, to, to take what was wrong and make it right again, to take the broken and to mend it, to take the lost and help them be found Sins, it means missing the mark. It means failure, transgression. It's, it's us not being able to do what we were created to do, to love God and worship him perfectly and, and care for his world and have dominion over his world and to bring peace and hope and love and joy into his world. We are incapable of doing that because of sin. And so Jesus now has come to redeem, to save people from their sin, and to create this new humanity, to produce in us this new life that would resemble the life back in the garden before Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit. Jesus came to save us from our sins. And the last point in here is that Jesus is the prophetic fulfillment of Emmanuel, God with us. Look at verse 23. This is a prophecy from Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. We celebrate Jesus, we worship Jesus, we cling to Jesus because he is God with us. If you remember back to the garden before Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, God was with them. They had this intimate relationship without division, without distance, without shame. Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit and then all of a sudden they were hiding from God. They were covering themselves up. Throughout the history of the Old Testament, God was with his people but he was contained to the temple, to the holy, place, to the holy of holies. 
And here it's prophesied in Isaiah that God would come and he would dwell with his people. He would be among his people. That's what we're seeing in Jesus. That he is God in flesh among and with his people. Jesus is Emmanuel. That's his other name. His name is Jesus, God saves, or Emmanuel, God with us. He both saves his people and he both resides in and with his people. Church, this is incredibly important for us to remember. If you believe in Jesus Christ, if you believe in Emmanuel, he is with you. In those parenting moments where you feel alone, do you believe that Jesus is God with you? In those work moments where you're stressed out of your mind and you don't know how to interact with those around you, do you believe that God is with you? Do you surrender to his presence in you? In those marriage moments where you just can't seem to figure it out and you, you're like ships passing in the night or you're, you're just in the midst of conflict, can you pause and remember that Jesus is with you? God is with you. In those moments when you're alone, you, you don't have roommates or you don't have a spouse or maybe you've lost a spouse and you just feel so incredibly alone, would you remember that God is with you? In those moments where the world is telling you one thing and where you are being condemned by your own conscience or by the world, would you remember that if you are in Christ, God is with you? And everything that God says about Jesus and thinks about Jesus is applied to you because he is with you and in you, making you new. Jesus is a hero for us to celebrate. There's three, three questions that I just want to close this morning out with as we think about this. Church, will you trust God rather than your own plans? Will, will, will you trust him for more than what your eyes can see? Will you surrender to God's seemingly ridiculous will, trusting that in the end it will work out for your good, for his glory ultimately, for your good and for the advancement of his kingdom? Secondly, will you trust Jesus' ability to save rather than your own effort and savability? I kind of created that word, savability. But, but I think this is incredibly important. As I counsel people and talk with people and as I search my own heart, I think we far too often, we resist Jesus' ability to save. As this passage tells us that you shall name him Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. That's his job. That's what he came to do. And I think as I search my own heart and as I interact with people, people don't feel like they're worth saving or like they're worthy of saving because they haven't done enough good. Church, we far too easily trust our own efforts or our own moral character or our own ability to repent of our sin. This passage is telling us that Jesus came to save his people from their sins. He came to do the work for you in your place, on your behalf, because you're not good enough to do it. Amen? You're not savable. Your efforts don't save you. That's the point of the gospel. Believe it, church. I, I, oh, I get so tired. And I, I love the church. I love you. I get so tired of counseling people who think that they have to save themselves. It's so clear. Jesus saves, church. Jesus saves. 
And I'm not frustrated at you for not believing that. I just want you to believe it because it's so freeing. He doesn't save you because you're savable. He doesn't save you because you've done some good things and, well, hey, here's, here's, a, here's a broken vessel that I think has the potential to be put back together. No, you're a broken vessel without potential. And Jesus gives you all the potential, all the fix, all the saving that you need, him and him alone. Church, I beg of you, would you please start to believe that Jesus saves? Your church attendance doesn't save. Your devotional life doesn't save. Your worshiping with, with power and vigor and passion doesn't save. Your, your, the, the veracity of your faith doesn't save. Faith in Jesus saves. Church, let's help one another believe that. Help me believe that. I don't believe that. Sometimes I believe that a good sermon helps to save me. God's more pleased with me if I preach well. Don't you believe that? God's more pleased with you if you do your devotional life well. God's more pleased with you if you're part of a community group and go through all the motions of Christian life. We believe that. Let's help each other believe what's true. Jesus saves. Thank you, Greg. I love Greg's feedback. Lastly, third question, will you live in the power of Emmanuel? This passage tells us that Jesus came to be with us. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Another passage in the book of Romans tells us that all the power that raised Jesus from the dead is available to and at work in us if we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ. So church, if Emmanuel means God with us, if Emmanuel is Jesus' name, if Jesus has promised to be with us, will you live in that power? In the day-to-day -day moments, in the day-to-day -day challenges, will you trust and believe and live in the power of God at work in you? Flip to Matthew chapter 28, the end of the book. We're going to be in Matthew for months, but I think we're going to flip to the end of this book almost every week because it's such a great promise, and it connects. So here, Matthew chapter 1, we're told that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. He's bursting onto the scene. This is new information. Matthew is letting the readers know that now, in Jesus, God is with us, and listen to how Jesus closes out this book. Matthew records Jesus' writing. Matthew chapter 28, verse, starting in verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Love that. Any of you connect with that? <laughs> Let's help each other believe what's true. And when they saw him, they worshipped and some doubted. What a, what a great faith community. Some worshipping, some believing, some doubting, and then next week it'll be different. Those who are doubting will be believing and those who are worshiping will be doubting. And Jesus came and he said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority. Where? All authority in, okay, the unseen realm and earth, the seen realm, where you are right now, where you'll be tomorrow, where you are this afternoon when you're arguing with your spouse or your roommate. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, who is with you? 
Who is with you, church? Emmanuel, God with us. You're not alone. You have the power of the living God within you, among you, surrounding you. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you did what we are incapable of doing, humbling yourself, leaving your throne on high, walking among us here below, living a perfect life, dying a sacrificial death and overcoming sin and death in the grave. Lord, I pray that we would apply these lessons that we've learned as we look at the life of Joseph. What an incredible example he is for us. I pray that we, like him, would trust you for more than what our eyes could see. I pray that we, like him, would obey you more than we understand you, beyond our ability to comprehend you. Ultimately, Lord, we look to you, Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We thank you for what you've done in our place on our behalf that you save. I pray now that as we take communion, that that would be a a visible, physical reminder to us that you are with us as we take the elements into our body, as we eat the cracker, which reminds us of your body broken for us, and drink the cup, which reminds us of your blood shed for us. I pray that that would be a powerful, supernatural reminder that you, in fact, are with us. You're not with us because these, we simply ate these elements which represent you, but your spirit is living within your people. So I do pray that these elements would help to make that real for us. I pray that this church family, this church body would help to make it real for one another. Help us to believe and apply the gospel, the good news that Jesus saves and that he is present. For your glory, for our good, in the advancement of your gospel, we pray. Amen.